He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now you'll see that we're going to read from Psalm 31, verses 11 to 18 which is printed in bold in your booklets. We're going to read this section of this psalm together. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbours and an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten as though I were dead. 
I have become like broken pottery, for I hear many whispering terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Let me not be put to shame, Lord, for I have cried out to you. But let the wicked be put to shame and be silent in the realm of the dead. Let their lying lips be silenced, for with pride and contempt they speak arrogantly against the righteous. Our epistle reading this Good Friday morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The Holy Gospel is written in the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to St John, beginning at verse 16. Glory to you, Lord Christ. John 19, 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with an undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. 
Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Our theme here at uh, St. Philip's this Easter is hope in a surprising place. Hope in a surprising place. Though actually the title is, is in fact a gross understatement. A gross understatement. It's hope in the very last place you'd ever think of finding it. That's a bit long, but that's what the title should be called. Hope in the most, the strangest place you'd ever think of finding it. 
an astounding place, a ridiculous place, a shameful place. Uh, whether you're a believer or not, uh, we may suffer from such a familiarity with the basic Easter story, we don't realise how shocking it is. I could go further. One reason it takes an effort for us to grasp what the Easter story sounded like to those who first heard it is that we live in a culture that has been deeply shaped by that Easter story, whether we're aware of it or not. This is true of you, even if you're an atheist, you've been shaped by this story. In fact, the very thing that was so offensive to the first hearers has most shaped our own Western civilization. When the Easter message was first proclaimed in the ancient world, what was the typical reaction? People thought it was ridiculous and stupid. Ridiculous and stupid. How do we know this? Because that's what those who first proclaimed it tell us was their experience. You can divide the people of the ancient Mediterranean world into basically two categories, two bunches. The vast majority of people, Gentiles or Greeks, and Jews or Judeans on the other. The Gentiles or Greeks are the normal society, and you put the Romans in there as well. There's also another smaller, somewhat weird group, minority, who didn't worship the customary gods or take part in normal social life, the Jews. They worshiped the one God and kept to themselves, at least the observant ones did. So they're Greeks and Jews, generally speaking. The trouble is, to both groups, the message about Jesus Christ was a disappointment, to say the least. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where St. Paul writes from his experience of proclaiming Christ in the eastern part of the Roman Empire in the middle of the first century. And what he writes does indeed show us that Easter is indeed hope in a surprising place. As you see from the weekly notes, or which you may want to turn up and look at if you want to, three headings. One, hope's expectations. Two, hope's disappointment. Three, hope in a very surprising place. Number one, hope's expectations. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. There are differing expectations of the two groups that I've mentioned. Let's start with the Jews. At the beginning of their nation's story, they were liberated from slavery by God's miraculous acts in what we call the Exodus. So naturally they expect to find hope in such divine miraculous acts. They look for prophets or wonder workers or the Messiah in which God's power will be at work. They are, theirs is a religion of, of, of God's power. The Jews demand signs. What about the Greeks? They didn't look to religion so much as to philosophy for hope. Sure, they, they had their many gods who they worshipped in customary ways. But they looked not so much to divine action, but into human insights into the nature of reality. They sought to find happiness by living in accordance with what they thought was the reality around them, as taught by philosophers. Greeks look for wisdom. For a good example can be found in the writing of the Stoic philosopher Seneca, who was a contemporary of Paul's and the leading intellectual of his day. Here's what he wrote in On the Happy Life. Quote, the happy man is content 
with his present lot no matter what it is and is reconciled to his circumstances. That is, you live by the philosophy, it is what it is. And that's why today people still find Stoicism as a philosophy attractive. So there we have it. Jews, expectations, hopes, expectations. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But unfortunately, they're disappointed. My second heading, hopes, disappointment. Paul reports that what he proclaims is deeply unsatisfactory to his hearers. Deeply unsatisfactory. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. Here's the problem. They, we preach Christ crucified. Paul proclaimed that the crucified man Jesus had been raised from the dead and was now Lord. Jews and Greeks thought such a proclamation was utterly ridiculous and stupid. Stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. The word translated stumbling block is the Greek word which, um, scandalon, from which we get our word scandal or scandalous, something you trip over, you see. We preach Christ crucified, scandalous to Jews, that it's impossible for them. On the other hand, the word translated foolishness in is the Greek word morion, which we which get the word moron and moronic. But we preach Christ crucified, moronic to Gentiles. That is, it's stupid. That's the problem. We Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, scandalous to Jews and stupid to Gentiles. Why is what Paul proclaims such a problem? Why is it a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles? Well, it's not so much they proclaiming Christ, but proclaiming Christ crucified. That's really the nub of the problem. That's the moronic and scandalous bit. That's the impossible and stupid bit. The proclamation that Jesus was Lord would have certainly sounded very strange. But to proclaim that a crucified man was Lord, that went way too far. That's, that was beyond the pale. That cannot possibly be. That's ridiculous. Now, to understand why this is such a problem, we need to understand something about crucifixion itself and its place in the ancient world. Again, we have the problem that we have crosses as familiar things and often for us, crosses are sources of comfort. The complete opposite in the ancient world. Crucifixion was remarkably widespread a penalty in antiquity. You've just heard an account of crucifixion in John's rather strange telling in John 19. It was regarded as the worst kind of death. It was harsh, violent, and painful public deterrent. The purpose of crucifixion was to publicly degrade and shame its victims in the most cruel way. It was the punishment reserved for criminals, runaway slaves, bandits, the lowest of the low. Tom Holland, the widely published ancient historian and blogger, um, a podcast, I should say, and the writer of the recent book, Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, sums it up simply, no death was more excruciating, more contemptible than crucifixion. 
The unfortunate victim would be brutally tortured, usually with severe flogging, then led out publicly to the place of execution, public, naked, nailed to a cross, the victim was then subject to utmost indignity. Usually to face lengthy, drawn-out death through exhaustion or shock, and then left to, normally left to rot, not in Jesus' case. The whole point of crucifixion was death in utter public shame and humiliation. The Roman jurist Cicero described crucifixion as, quote, a most cruel and distinguished, disgusting punishment, and says that, quote, the very mention of the cross should be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. In other words, it's something you don't talk about in proper society. Now imagine this Jew turns up, right, and announces that the one who will judge the world, the one who is Lord of all, the one through whom freedom and hope can be found is Jesus of Nazareth, Christ crucified, a crucified Jew. If you're Greek, you would say, that, that is stupid. That's madness. Where's the wisdom in that? The Greek, the, the, the Jew would say, that's impossible to believe. Where's the power of God in that? And we have direct evidence, by the way, of such reactions other than just Paul's report. An item of graffiti has been found on the Palatine Hill in Rome, thought to a date about the year 200, and I've put it in the, in the order of service. You may have seen it before. The Greek wording says, Se alebenos sibetetheon, alexamenos worships his God. That's what, the, that's what the, the words are saying underneath it. Now, what do you think it is? Well, it's poking fun at one Alexamenos, who is worshipping his God. That's him, I think, on the left. But what kind of God is Alexamenos worship? It's a kind of donkey-headed man on the cross. It doesn't take much to realise that Alexamenos is a Christian. But he's regarded as a fool. And that's exactly what Christ crucified seemed like to many people. A Christian leader called Justin Martyr, writing some 30 years earlier, shows this attitude in the graffiti was all too common. He wrote, and I quote, they say our madness consists in the fact we put a crucified man in second place after the unchangeable and eternal God. Not just the ancient world. The other day on Twitter of all places, I came across a tweet from someone calling themselves the Hellenist who was channeling these Greek attitudes of the ancient world. Here's what the Hellenists said. I quote, real gods like Zeus are forms of the good, strength, power, beauty, health, virtue. Fake gods like Jesus are forms of the bad, weakness, powerlessness, hum humiliation, ugliness, emaciation. Which gods we worship determines what we manifest. Manifest the good, manifest Zeus. I don't know if he's being serious to think this, but it's an attitude Paul would have recognised very immediately. So here's where we've arrived at. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Which leads one last question. Is that the last word? Is all the disdain and dismissal of the proclamation of Christ crucified justified? Is Christ crucified in truth just stupid and ridiculous? 
we come to our third heading. Three, hope in a very surprising place. Back to 1 Corinthians, now verse 24. I'll put it in context. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those whom God have called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Hope in a very surprising place indeed. It turns out that the Greeks and the Jews were not that far off in what they were expecting. They just couldn't see it in Christ crucified. But there was, it was there all along. Jews demand signs, that is, they, but they find Christ crucified a stumbling block. Yet to those who are called, to those who are called, Christ the power of God. There it is. They demanded signs to see the power of God. To those whom God has called, there is the power of God. Christ crucified. The Greeks looked for deep insights to reality, know how to live. They found Christ crucified stupid, foolishness. But to those whom God has called, Christ the wisdom of God. There it is. They look for wisdom. And for those of God who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the wisdom of God. It's there all the time in a most, most surprising place. The phrase, those who God has called, are those whom God has turned around by his Holy Spirit and opened their eyes. Opened their eyes to see Christ crucified, not as ridiculous and stupid, but to recognise there the power and wisdom of God. What a contrast. I can't think of two more extreme positions that, that with, to, you could have to Christ crucified. Um, ridiculous, stupid, the power and wisdom of God. I mean, this, there's no middle ground here. As Paul wrote, in fact, in verse 18, when he introduced the topic, the message of the cross is foolishness, we could use our more clear, stronger word, is stupid to those who are perishing, to us of being saved, it's the power of God. Now you may ask, how, how Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God? How can that be? Because God was fully at work in him, not just in his resurrection, but also in the shame and pain of his crucifixion. A little later at the end of 1 Corinthians 1, Paul speaks of Christ like this. Quote, Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. That's Christ crucified, raised from the dead. Our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. And it's because the risen Christ crucified is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption, that we do call today Good Friday. Though it's important to note the resurrection does not undo what Paul calls in, in Galatians 5.11, the scandal of the cross. The resurrection doesn't sort of undo it. Even finding in Christ crucified the wisdom and power of God, our righteousness, holiness, redemption, doesn't wash away, doesn't wash away the utter strangeness of it. 
not just hope in a surprising place, we should have called the series Hope in a Humanly Impossible Place. Tom Holland, who I mentioned earlier, remarks on the profound fact of this strangeness. I quote, it is the audacity of it, the audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe that serves to explain more surely than anything else the sheer strangeness of Christianity and of the civilization to which it gave birth. If you want to know more, I recommend reading his book, Dominion. It's, it's a profoundly important book. Although, Tom, unfortunately, Holland remains a friend, but not a, not, not a believer. Now, if it's audacious, the sheer audacity of it, it's God who's audacious. It's God who's audacious. Because this is the way God did it. God chose to do it. Paul writes in the very next verse, after what we've been looking at, justifying this audacious strangeness, 1 Corinthians 1, 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Complete reversal of values. What a cracker summary. The stupidity of God is wiser than human strength. And the weakness, the shamefulness of God is stronger than human strength. It's as though God has deliberately, in the gospel, overturned human expectations, put them upside down. Instead of the, the, the way to life and hope being obvious and easy, it's the opposite. In fact, Paul says so much in the verse before our text. For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness or the stupidity of what was proclaimed to save those who believed. It pleased God to save those who believe by what is ridiculous and stupid, to human standards at least. Why? Because God's ways are not the world's ways, nor the ways of human being. His stupidity and weakness is stronger than our strength and wisdom. I'm reminded in passing of what happened how to Peter. We read in, in Mark's Gospel, remember when Jesus, he recognised Jesus as Messiah, the Son of God, he said, and tried then to, to talk Jesus out of his forthcoming death in Jerusalem. And what Jesus said when he told Peter off was simple. He says, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind not on the things of God, but the things of man. See, Peter, Peter like all the ancient world, all the ancient world had yet to learn that the stupidity of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. They all had to learn that, and they did, in the Christ crucified. So now, therefore, brothers and sisters, we gather on this Good Friday. Let us rejoice in our hope, in the most surprising place, a hope in the most surprising place, a place that both humbles us and gives us joy.